Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, I think I wrote my first article about 1MDB back in... 2016, uh, when the Justice Department was pursuing a number of civil forfeiture actions involving 1MDB. This is Tom Fox. In today's episode, I visit with Stuart Bishop from Law 360. Stuart is currently covering the Roger Ung trial in Brooklyn. He has covered Roger Ung in the pretrial phase and 1MDB since 2016. And it's a great conversation around his literally gavel-to-gavel reporting on this case. It's fascinating, and it's one of the few FCPA cases to go to trial. I know you will enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. Have you ever thought about the intersection of tax and compliance? Well, I had not until I did a five-part podcast series on Taxman with Tracy Howe. Check it out on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and you are in for a treat today because I have with me Stuart Bishop. Stuart, as I know him, is a reporter with Law 360, and he's been reporting on the Roger Ng trial, but he's been covering it for a lot longer. So, Stuart, first of all, with an incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Uh, Thank you for having me. Uh, Stuart, could you tell our audience your professional background? Um, sure. I got my start at the Boston Globe, uh, you know, working nights and weekends, covering street-level crime, public safety, and any other local news that needed doing. Uh, after I joined Law 360, uh, I bounced around for a little while covering various aspects of or different areas of law, like employment, antitrust, intellectual property, before I settled on white collar a number of years ago. So now we're going to get to the fun stuff because uh, we're going to talk about Roger Ung and 1MDB. Uh, I want to ask you to review 1MDB. I'll only say it's been one of the most delicious scandals that I've ever been able to uh, read about. I've been following everybody's work on it. And Roger is not the main player, but he is was potentially a player. And unfortunately for him, it looks like he's the only one who may ever go to trial in this matter. Uh, so could you tell us, um, you've been reporting on Roger, his trial, and this matter for quite some time. What's been your involvement in the Roger Ung and Greater One MDB uh, matter? Yeah, I think I wrote my first article about 1MDB back in 2016 uh, when the Justice Department was pursuing a number of civil forfeiture actions involving 1MDB uh, and Joe Lowe. Uh, most of those have been settled, uh, to my understanding. But I didn't really get all that deep into the story until late 
2018, early 2019, when Roger Ung and, and others were hit with criminal charges, both here uh, in New York as well as Malaysia. So what day intrigued you on the pretrial side of things? Because that was pretty crazy, too. One thing that kind of jumped out at me was the uh, similarity to another case I covered in, in 2019. Um, that was against a, a shipbuilding executive named Jean Bustani. Um, incredibly similar fact pattern uh, in that case. Uh, it involved about $2 billion worth of state-backed loans from Credit Suisse to the government of Mozambique, supposed to go to fund maritime projects, but about $200 million of which uh, went to pay bribes and kickbacks. Um, that trial went uh, on in the same courthouse as Roger Ong uh, is facing trial right now and uh, interestingly, resulted in an acquittal on all charges. You know, after the trial was over, I, I spoke to jurors in that case, and uh, they told me they had acquitted him based solely on venue grounds, uh, which was unusual. It's very similar. You know, it was an FCPA case or FCPA-like case, also in the Eastern District. And, you know, as far as venue goes, you can definitely tell the prosecutors in the Roger Ung trial are taking a belt and suspenders approach uh, to that question. Well, that brings up a great question, which is why is Roger Ung, who, as far as I could tell, never permanently worked in New York, on trial in New York for an FCPA case? Well, uh, you've got the fact that Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, is headquartered in New York um, you know, in a lot of these cases, uh, as far as venue goes, what they base uh, that on is the fact that these transactions were conducted in U.S. dollars and as such uh, utilized correspondent banks uh, in New York. So prosecutors uh, assert venue that way. They also, you know, assert venue based on electronic communications involving people in the U.S. and uh, in this case, you know, both Roger Ung, Joe Lowe, and also uh, Tim Leisner uh, were in the U.S. Uh, during the time of the alleged conspiracy. So I, I think that about covers it. Uh, how is the Department of Justice's uh, approach to venue in this case different than what you saw in the Buscani trial? Well, in the Buscani trial, there was – it was – Honestly, kind of thin. It really relied on uh, the correspondent banks uh, that were being used for U.S. dollar transactions in that case. And um, the defense put on a, a pretty good witness uh, to rebut um, that theory of the case, just kind of saying that, you know, there was no actual physical money that changed hands. This was kind of just, you know, one banker talking to another banker and each making. Uh, little notes in their respective books. Uh, so in this case, you know, they're definitely draw, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, I guess you would say. For my sins, I'm a recovering trial lawyer, and I've tried probably 50 cases. And if you can get a witness to admit on the stand he's lying or you can catch him in a lie, you think you pretty much won the case. That does not even begin to describe what I've read you report on. And so I wanted to maybe start off asking you just how wild has this been for a white collar criminal reporter to sit in and watch what I've been reading you report on uh, daily for Law 360? 
this has been, without a doubt, one of the most complex and, and strange trials I've ever covered. You know, as I've written before, there's really no doubt in my mind that, you know, a massive crime occurred here. It's just a matter of who is responsible. You know, we can start with Joe Lowe. Uh, you know, I could write a book on him himself. Uh, you know, he's an interesting character. He, he popped up in the U.S. press back in 2009 when the New York Post reported on this mystery Malaysian man who was just blowing through gobs of money in the New York club scene, leading an extravagant lifestyle. That interestingly, interestingly uh, later raised red flags at at Goldman Sachs uh, when they were considering taking him on as a private wealth client that they did not. Uh, and then you get to Roger Ung and, and Tim Leisner. Uh, Leisner's testimony was just bizarre. <laughs> Covered dozens of trials and, you know, cooperators are always flawed, uh, but Leisner is just exceptionally so. I have uh, met a couple of fraudsters in my life, and the last one I met, um, I walked away. I knew they were a fraudster, but I thought, you know, I really like this person. I can see why they're so successful. Is there any of that in Leisner, or, or is he a completely different can of, of uh, worms? It's hard to say. I wouldn't say he came off as all that likable on the stand. He described uh, just years and years of his, you know, living by kind of like a code of deception. He was just kind of a serial liar, both in his professional life and his personal life. So, you know, maybe he talked a good game uh, back then, but um, he did not come off as sympathetic. So I recognize the prosecution had a very difficult case, as you suggested, whenever you have a cooperating witness. But how did you assess the direct testimony of Leisner, did you feel like the government was able to get the message it wanted across? Let's see. You know, he was really, you know, by far and away the, the key witness in this case. And, you know, on direct examination, he really, you know, made all the connections. He's the one who who ties Roger Ung to this whole uh, scheme. And, you know, again and again, uh, over, he was on the Stanford 10 days. Uh, over that time, you know, he made sure to, you know, tie Roger to, to every aspect of the scheme that prosecutors were alleging. You know, it, probably the most memorable part of his testimony uh, was when he described this uh, meeting in London at Joe, Joe Lowe's residence, which was kind of like a, akin to a a mafia sit down, you know, where the bosses come together and decide what's going to happen uh, in a scheme or a crime. And, you know, he described how Joe Lowe produced a sheet of paper and, and wrote down all the people that would need to be bribed in order to, to ensure these 1MDB bond deals went through. Direct examination, you know, he, he hit all the bases. It was... Uh, Somewhat of a different story on Cross. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. And that's what I would like to turn to next, because uh, we often hear the term withering cross-examination. I've seen someone on this stand for maybe a couple of days. 
Uh, but that completely, first of all, that description pales to what I think you saw. And two, uh, he was on the stand for an incredibly long number of days. So I'd like to maybe get your first your impressions of the cross-examination. And then did you feel like the defense was able to poke the holes they needed to? It's hard to come away from, from watching that cross-examination without concluding that his testimony kind of went off the rails. You know, he admitted to having, he admitted to be married, married to two separate women at two different points in his life uh, and, and forging divorce documents, uh, admitting to numerous extramarital affairs during that time, including with the, the daughter of the Malaysian ambassador to the U.S., uh, a Goldman Sachs client, and that kind of bolsters this defense theory that Tim Leisner is uh, someone who uses intimacy to, you know, get ahead in, in business and in life. And yeah, yeah. the most memorable memorable uh, moment for me was the testimony when uh, Leisner said that he impersonated his then wife, Judy Chan Leisner, by setting up a fake email account in order to correspond with his now current wife, uh, Kimora Lee Simmons, who's a reality TV show and, and former model, in order to make Simmons believe that he and Judy Chan Leisner were no longer together. And then that, you know, uh, that sort of went badly. Uh, he was a little too convincing. Uh, Simmons Leisner uh, started asking Judy Chan Leisner to you know, have her kids and uh, her join her and Tim on, on vacation, which uh, then Tim had to come up with another number of excuses to get out of that. And, you know, another thing that, that struck me on cross was he, he was pretty evasive. Um, you, you know, I mean, all cooperating witnesses are, you know, they, they bristle a little bit when, when getting questioned by defense lawyers, but, Leisner kind of took it to an, a whole new level. Uh, he, you know, was just drawing blank after question, you know, drawing a blank on question after question after question. You know, it, to take one example, you know, on direct, when describing the, the, the London meeting with Joe Lowe and Roger Ong and others uh, that I mentioned earlier, you know, he described that encounter in such extraordinary detail, you know, talking about who was in what room and, you know, uh, who took their drink order and that kind of thing. And, you know, he, it, it even, it even got down, like he described in extreme detail, the, the doorbell of, you know, to, to Joe Lowe's, uh, condo, you know, and you compare that with uh, cross-examination, you know, he's asked about all these key meetings, trips, conversations, uh, surrounding the scheme and just drawing a blank and, Despite the fact that he testified he met uh, with the FBI over 50 times uh, prior to trial, he apparently remembered uh, little to nothing about any of those transactions. So his evasiveness was striking. Did you or how did you assess the judge's attitude uh, during the trial? Did he you know, play it straight? Did you see the judge? Uh, really become exasperated. And, and I want to keep the discovery dispute out of that because I want to maybe touch on that separately. Do you, 
what did you see in, in checking out the judge and that sort of thing? You know, Judge Brody, it is uh, Judge Margot Brody. Um, she's the uh, chief judge right now of the Eastern District of New York. Uh, she has a pretty calm demeanor uh, for the most part. Um, compared to a lot of judges I see, there's been no tirades from the bench uh, or anything like that. Um, she was a, an assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District for about 13 years before uh, being nominated to the bench by President Obama. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think that history as a prosecutor shows. Uh, now let me turn to the discovery dispute. And once again, I'm, I'm reading your reports of this. So I've been involved in those. I understand sometimes mistakes happen and sometimes bigger mistakes happen. And this seemed to me to be a really big one. Um, when I read your first article on it, I thought that the defense would get a mistrial um, or at least a continuation. They did get, did get some time to review the documents. But uh, what was your sense in the courtroom from the discovery dispute? You know, this has left me really kind of baffled. Um, you know, as I reported, you know, amid Leisner's direct examination, uh, prosecutors disclosed this major mea culpa. They, they said that more than 15,000 uh, non-privileged documents, including material from, from Leisner's email accounts and laptops, had been wrongly withheld by a, a filter team from Maine Justice that was tasked with reviewing, reviewing discovery for privileged material. And, you know, that came on top of another... 120,000 documents that weren't disclosed to the defense until after openings uh, in the trial. And, you know, at the time, Judge Brody called the omission, you know, troubling, disturbing, uh, and and the prosecutors themselves uh, called the discovery failure inexcusable and, and most memorably uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Drew Roll said it was a total institutional failure. You know, that was kind of the end of it. We we haven't heard anything since then. You know, there's been no apparent consequence for the government. And, and that kind of stands in contrast to a few other cases recently in New York, um, New York federal courts, uh, where prosecutors have really landed in, in hot water over discovery uh, Brady violations. How do you assess the jury's engagement at this point? Uh, do they seem interested, engaged, taking notes, not taking notes? What? How, how do you sense that from the jury, at least at this point? Uh, unfortunately, it's kind of hard to get a read on the jury in this trial. The, uh, the press and the public uh, uh, are not allowed in the actual courtroom due to COVID-19 restrictions. So we've had to make do with a closed-circuit video feed of the trial. So I... I you know, unlike normal trials, I can't really, you know, get a read on the on the jury's reaction to to witness testimony and the like. Um, but from what I'm told uh, by attorneys and others, uh, they do seem pretty engaged. And uh, one thing is they are they consistently show up on time, which I can tell you is definitely not the norm for a lot of trials I covered. So, so there's that. So can I maybe turn a little bit uh, to your routine? Uh, how, what's it like now that I know you're covering this remotely? What's it like to recover uh, to cover a trial remotely, and sort of what's your daily routine? Run back to wherever you type and type up uh, today's 
article or today's report and uh, get it to us for the next day? Or how, how does that all work for you in Law 360? Uh, well, you know, I'm still at the courthouse every day. We're in an overflow courtroom watching the feed uh, about two floors up where the trial is taking place. Um, you know, it's definitely been grueling. Uh, as I said before, uh, this case is incredibly complex. Just trying to keep track of the money trail where everything's going, you know, it takes a lot of work. Uh, I, I will say, though, this trial is uh, coming up on two months uh, the longest trial ever covered was five and a half months with 22 days of jury deliberation. So I think I, I've been prepared for these kind of cases. You know, just sometimes the sheer amount of information that's being conveyed at the trial is almost too much. You know, I, I've been covering this case for like two and a half years, and I, I think I have a better idea than than most about what's at stake here. But there have been so many times that, that me and other reporters uh, – you know, we have a press room that we work from uh, in the Eastern District Courthouse in Brooklyn. And where we go back after the end of the trial and we end up, you know, just talking to each other and, and trying to get exhibits, uh, you know, from the government or the defense and, and just trying to nail down uh, exactly what we've just heard. Well, Stuart, unfortunately, we're uh, at the end of the time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on uh, yourself, Law 360, or on your reporting, what would be the best way for them to find out? Uh, well, you can read all my articles uh, at law360.com or uh, in your email inbox for those of you who subscribe to our newsletters. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at, at Stuart Bishop. Uh, and if you want to check out somebody else uh, who's done a lot of coverage on this trial, I'd recommend taking a look at uh, Pat Hurtado's reporting for Bloomberg News. Both of us have been doing so-called gavel-to-gavel coverage of this trial. Well, Stuart, I wanted to uh, thank you for what you've done on this trial and indeed uh, the coverage of pre-trial and during the trial. It's It's been frankly, a lot of information, but more importantly, a ton of fun to read. So uh, I know we're nearing the end, so I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to your wrap-up. And I'm sure you thought about this, but I really hope you write a book about this. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, appreciate your, uh, I appreciate your reading. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you by now have checked out our five-part series on Taxman, on the intersection of tax and compliance, which appeared on the Innovation and Compliance podcast series, also on the Compliance Podcast Network. It's an area that is not often discussed, but it's something that every compliance practitioner needs to be cognizant of. And I hope you will use that podcast series to go down and talk to the head of tax at your organization to see how tax can help support compliance. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.